welcome, I'm Jean Parker, and you're listening to Discovering How, a podcast of the ethical business building the future organization. We're a global learning community using our workplaces to build a better future. On today's program, we're focusing on understanding more about diversity. Hayam Zamani tells us about his practical experience with the many forms of diversity in his global tech startup company. Carl Emerson shares some wisdom about managing diversity in business. But first, Arthur Dahl is the president of the International Environment Forum and a board member of EBBF. We spoke at a recent EBBF event in Geneva, and I began by asking him what we can learn about human diversity from that which is found in nature. I chose my profession in part to try to understand unity and diversity better, thinking that maybe we could learn from the natural world uh, about how over millions of years diversity has increased on this planet. You know, the number of species has gone up uh, and they are, they're more and more integrated in their systems. And it's a, so learning, the, might say, the scientific foundations of that diversity was a very useful way of understanding how do we address the challenges of diversity in our own society, in human society. And so, you know, I picked, as one of my research subjects, coral reefs, because they're one of the most complex ecosystems known, and therefore I thought I could learn more about diversity from trying to understand the way that system worked. And one of my early experiences, I was living in an undersea habitat on the bottom of a coral reef, 20 meters down, uh, trying to understand how the reef system worked. And there was this sandy area where the sand was moving all the time and no animals seemed to be able to fix themselves there. But there were some seaweeds that had roots that had rooted down into the sand. And where they were, then sponges would come and settle on the seaweeds and grow out and stabilize the sand so that the seaweed wasn't washed away and the, the sponge had a place to hold on to. And together, they were able to colonize and you know, grow well in this area where neither one by themselves would have been able to survive. So it was a simple example of even things different as a seaweed and a sponge cooperating in order to increase the richness of their environment habitat and find a, a good place to live. So all, this whole ecosystem was forming and, and becoming interdependent. Yeah, the, 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 all these different kinds of things could live together you know, the richness of an ecosystem comes because each of the different species in the system is contributing something to the whole, and that something emerges as a, as a greater, higher, more productive system than any one could do by themselves. Each one, in some way, helps the others in creating an environment in which all of them can be more, be more successful. So you can make a pretty accurate parallel between a coral reef and human and planetary society, right? Yes. I mean, even structurally, you can look at a coral reef and it looks very much like a city. You know, the corals, which are colonies that build their own skeleton to rise up to get more light and access to, to plankton. Uh, it's like apartment buildings. People have their balconies to go out and so on and so forth. Even structurally, there are similarities. Uh, and there, there are some species that are you know, like the the people who collect you know, the rubbish, the, the garbage collectors uh, going around picking up any loose bits of you know, things drifting along the bottom and cleaning up and recycling those materials into the system so they're not lost from the system. Once when I was teaching 
young people at the National Museum, uh, I took them to the aquarium. And I showed, we looked at different kinds of fish. And you had these sort of catfish with their little barbell, their whiskers, cleaning up food off the bottom to eat it. And then we came out, and there was a parade of the city sanitation department with these street sweepers, with their turning little rotary brushes sweeping up the dirt on the street into the, the vacuum in the middle, exactly the same form and shape as the, as the catfish. You know, and it says, cl- cleaning up things in the same way. Uh, one was mechanical and a human invention. The other had evolved through biological evolution. But they were performing different functions, and they looked very much the same. All right, now, did this, did this occur to you at that time? I mean, did you yeah. kind of stop and say, wow, look at this, this is, exactly. this is really something? I hadn't anticipated it. It was purely by chance. But having just looked at how the fish were feeding, and then seeing that even the shape of the machines resembled, you know, the head of the fish with its barbells—it wasn't rotating wheels, but they were performing the same function to pick up what was on the ground and feed it into the point in the center. And so it was just—it was serendipitous, but it just—it was a way of showing the, the children the parallels between what they could experience in their own society and lessons we could learn from nature. Now, talk about justice, because do we have justice in a coral reef? Can we, can we expand the parallel that far? Or does that only involve human-influenced ecosystems? Well, I think it depends. I mean, if you consider justice as everything having a place and a role to contribute to the community, uh, then you might say that the coral reef not intentionally, not by, but perhaps simply by following some, might say, fundamental divine patterns or principles, has evolved so that each of the many different species have their role and place in the reef and contribute in some way to the good of the whole system. And they are they must accepted as part of that system. So while it is not intentional, as justice needs to be in human society, we, you know, we have many unjust elements of society because we pay no attention to it and we allow injustice to happen. There's, there's not that intentionality in nature, but, but the result is that the, the system strikes those balances that are the definition of justice. I mean, the symbol of justice is the old kind of balance of two pans with a bar. One, you know, are they equal or is one heavier than the other? And you see, you know, much of ecology is about the balances in nature and how things are kept in balance or come back to balance. So in that sense, you have you know, an, something that could be called justice in nature. In fact, they've even done experiments with dogs where dogs have a sense of justice. If you train two dogs uh, to do a certain trick and get a reward. So one dog does the trick and he gets the reward. And then the, another dog, the next dog does the trick and he gets a bigger reward. Sometimes the first dog won't do the trick again, but he didn't get as big enough a reward as the other dog, and he sees the injustice. You know? <laughs> so this is not just, not just humans, necessarily, who have some sense of justice. Talk about individual lifestyle and diversity. Well, I mean, this is in many ways the fundamental challenge that every individual human being faces, uh, and it, it is the core of all the religious teachings is the struggle between altruism and egoism, the struggle being thinking about yourself and thinking about others. And we are all, as children, we're naturally egoistical. We think about oneself, we're having to be fed and so on. But as we grow up, we normally, as we mature, should learn to become more and more altruistic and manage those 
those selfish desires, so to speak, because first, if we're having a family and children, the parents need to make sacrifices for the children. And this is all part of it. And so you might say the, the mature human, the human being that is fulfilling their potential as a human being, is one in which the selfish desires have been managed and the, the altruistic motivation to be of service to others becomes the dominant value in the person's life. Now this then becomes reflected in lifestyles. If you have the materialist consumer lifestyle where you see you being judged by how much you consume and the car you drive and the clothes you wear, uh, then it's a very self-centered, sort of egotistical view and very damaging for society in terms of the impact of that consumption on others and on the environment. Whereas if your aim is to be of service to society, you, you may say, well, simply, I should meet my basic needs. You know, I have some needs that have to be met. Once those are met, other things become more important. Many of our desires today aren't really anything that are good to us. They're cultivated by the consumer society that wants us to be passive consumers buying the products society is producing. So it's pushing us to have a very damaging lifestyle because that creates profits for the corporations who you know, are driven by that economic model. But in a society in which we're looking for the, the larger good of the whole and people are happy to have simpler lifestyles and turn their efforts more to developing social relationships and developing their intellectual accomplishments in science or contributing to spiritual welfare, educating others, there's much more pleasure that comes from that kind of, of, of thing than comes from simply the pleasure of consumerism, where you, you've just bought the latest cell phone and you're feeling wonderful about it until the next model comes out and then you're no longer happy with the cell phone you bought because there's now an even better model out there. Looking at the example of nature, say, of the coral reef, on the coral reef there's a place for everything. Even the least efficient bit of seaweed is adding something to the wealth of the whole. And so every human being, no matter how limited or handicapped may be, we can find a place for them to in some way add to the collective wealth of society. It's no longer the wealth of one company or the wealth of one you know, social group or of one country over others, but really saying, how do we work together to make certain everybody has a place, nobody is left behind, as the United Nations has called for you know, in the 2030 agenda, and we all can find ways of working together to advance towards a much better civilization than anything we can imagine today. Payam Zamani is the CEO of One Planet Ops, a company that operates technology companies and serves as an incubator and investor for new technology startups. Here are his thoughts on how diversity is an integral part of his company. I think that we can learn a lot from nature, that diversity is basically um, a prerequisite for life. And I think it's no different than for an organization, for a company, for a country. And in our company, we've taken diversity to probably a, 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 a degree that's an extreme. We have very diverse product lines. We have very diverse way of doing things. Like the fact that we operate businesses, we incubate new ideas, we invest. That's diverse. And then we don't run and operate one company. We have many businesses under our umbrella. We incubate multiple ideas at the same time. We also have diversity of geography. We have people working in Manila, in Nepropetrovsk, Ukraine, in Vancouver, Toronto, and San Francisco. Um, we are a company of about uh, 120 employees representing 12 different nationalities. 
um, also from cultural, racial background, uh, we try to cover a whole spectrum of humanity. So I think that that diversity brings, um, brings richness to not just the outcome of the work, but also the quality of the experience we have living our working hours. And the reason I really, really love my job is because of the people that I work with. It's because of the fact that we deal with people from all over the world. You know, one moment I'm in touch with our office in Manila, another moment with Nepropetrovsk, and totally different cultures, different way of looking at the world. But they bring so much richness, so much value in the experience that we have on a daily basis that I cannot imagine what I would do without. How boring it would have been if we were a company just including people in San Francisco. How um, I think uh, black and white that would have been from perspective that there wouldn't be enough richness in, 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 in the experience. So it's, uh, it's really, it creates an environment worth living. Now you made an interesting statement in your keynote yesterday to the effect that when you have so many so-called minority people, and that's a, a classification I kind of put in quotes, <laughs> the effectiveness of the company really increases. Could you say more about that? I, I can really only uh, look at uh, my own company as an example that, that I have experienced, that we have people uh, from uh, a wide variety of age groups, uh, uh, backgrounds as far as religion is concerned, as far as culture, race. And um, so lots of minority groups make up our business. So it is not as though we are, let's say, for example, primarily white and we have three African Americans. The company is made up of a collection of minorities. So what that results in is inevitably many different perspectives, many different ways of looking at things based on the perspectives that people have, based on where they grew up, where they live, the experiences they had growing up, and uh, they're male, female, so on. And um, that has a significant impact on the outcome of the business. But what I was specifically talking about last night was that when a minority group that usually has not been used to um, having a critical mass within an organization, reaches critical mass in an organization, that they have always been minority in every organization, but they reach all of a sudden critical mass in one entity. How will they behave? How will they start impacting the outcome of that one organization? Because for the first time, they have critical mass in one place. And that is what I'm really interested in and I'm experimenting with. And now, EBBF member Carl Emerson contributes his views on managing diversity strategically within organizations and business. This article is read for us by Valerie Davis in Toronto, Canada. When I think about diversity, I don't think about color, gender, or ethnicity first. I think about my beautiful daughters. My youngest has moderate deafness, and upon being told, most family members were distraught and anxious. I wasn't. For me, it was a gift, a mysterious and challenging one to be sure, but a gift that opened up aspects of human experience and the capacity to communicate with a part of our own humanity that others might miss out on or find harder to tap into. I've come to see diversity as an asset waiting for the right insight and the right environment to reveal its value, 
and not a constraint, but an enabler for increasing our own capacity, effectiveness, and insight in all aspects of our lives and work. Research suggests that in managing diversity, there is an optimum level of diversity unique to each organization that must carefully be sought. Too much diversity and cohesion becomes unwieldy, whilst too little diversity and homogeneity impoverishes the group. So achieving that balance is important. The empirical consensus is that where diversity is coupled with group cohesion, that is, when a group is at once diverse and united, then all kinds of advantages accrue to it compared to a group that is also united but not diverse. There is also evidence to suggest that the more diverse a group is, the more challenging it is to arrive at unity, so that the potential benefits of diversity can be offset by the potential hard work of making a diverse group gel, and a homogeneous group can consequently perform better than a diverse one. To put it in a different way, unity without diversity is better than diversity without unity. But unity and diversity together trump the advantages of homogeneity. It is therefore no surprise that in their pursuit of strategic excellence, the world's most competitive companies are vying with each other to achieve maximum unity amidst maximum diversity. Diversity is not a panacea or a curse, but a context with both negative and positive potentials, depending on how it is managed. Diversity management, on the other hand, is not a formula, but a constant journey of interaction, structuring, learning, and adjusting. Finally, the best way to believe in the positive power of diversity, not just intellectually, but in the deeper wellsprings of our motivations, is to experience it. Thank you for joining us. We hope today's program has inspired you, our listeners, with ideas for discovering how we can all build a prosperous, just, and sustainable civilization. This has been Ethical Business Building the Future, Discovering How. Get more from this podcast by sharing your comments, an article, or a link to something that's important to you. You can contact us on our website, www.ebbf.org. I'm Jean Parker for EBBF, and I thank you for listening.